0: My name is Kevin Schneider. For those of you who don't know me, I am the pastoral assistant of youth here at Trinity. And I want to first say thank you to the elders and to the church for allowing me to be able to speak to you this morning. It is an honor and a privilege to be speaking and preaching from God's word. Our passage this morning is Galatians four, one through seven. But before we go there, I want to briefly point us to another passage. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is the parable Jesus gives of the prodigal son in Luke 15. You're probably very familiar with it. It never gets old every time you read it. And the parable is about a father who has two sons. And the younger son, he takes the father's inheritance early. And he goes to a far country to squander it with reckless living. And when the son ran out of money from his reckless living, he hired himself out to feed pigs. And he became hungry enough and willing enough to eat even the pig food. It it reads, but when he came to himself, the son, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and I will go to my father and I will say to him, father. I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. As the son came, he's coming back ready to give this speech of settling to be his father's servant. The father sees him far off. He runs to him. He embraces him. He clothes him. He kills the fattened calf for him, and he throws a big party for him all for showing him his love for him as his father. It's a beautiful picture, but we also read of the older brother who's upset. He's not happy with everything that's going on. He sees that he thinks his father is playing favorites with his younger brother, and the brother doesn't see the son as deserving to be the son of the father. But the father tells the older brother, he says, Son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. And it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now, the main point of this parable is a call for the self-righteous Pharisees and religious leaders to love and accept those who are known for being sinners but have now repented and followed Jesus. Jesus. But I want you to take a moment with me and notice in the parable how both the brothers, they have a moment of forgetting their place as sons to their father. The younger brother sinned against his father greatly, and he came back thinking he was only good enough to be a servant. As far as he was concerned, he lost his privilege to be his son. But the father quickly reminds him that he still is his son by lavishing his love on him. And then we see the older brother and how he spent years living like a servant to his father, trying to earn his father's favor rather than serving him as his son who already has his father's favor. We see how the older brother had forgotten what his father had to remind him of. He says, all that is mine is yours. He spent his whole life trying to earn his father's approval, forgetting that he had it, the whole time. And as Christians, our, our assurance that we are children of God, it can be clouded like these two brothers to their father. We can find ourselves stumbling in sin and think God is no longer pleased with us. We find ourselves thinking that we, we must work and be good enough in and of ourselves to earn his favor and approval. And though we know of all that Christ had done for us, And the favor that we receive in him, we are yet drawn to earning our place before God by works righteousness instead of resting in Christ's righteousness. When we base our relationship with God on our works, Satan, he has a foothold to use our sin, the world, and our suffering to hurl accusations at us and cloud the assurance of our faith. But God, he wants you to know this morning that though this world threatens to undo you, your faith and your assurance that in Christ you will never be separated from the love of God. So our big idea, if you're writing notes, is God reassures believers that they are his adopted children by sending his son into the world and the spirit of his son into their hearts. That's our big idea this morning. Um, A little context is in youth this past year, we have gone through our series in Galatians called Freedom Through Faith, where we see the main idea of Galatians is that by faith alone in Christ alone, there is freedom from the curse of the law and freedom to live for God as his child and heir. And the Apostle Paul, he is writing to the Galatians because false teachers They've come into the church of Galatia, and they've begun teaching that faith in Jesus is not enough to save you. These false teachers, they they believed Christ died on the cross for sins, was raised on the third day. You should believe in him. So far, so good, right? But the problem is that they taught that faith in Jesus only got you halfway to being right with God. You need to make up the second half by by keeping circumcision and other Old Testament laws. And if not, you're not seen by God as good enough. And not only that, you're a second-rate Christian compared to the the first-class Jewish Christians. And this false teaching, it was enslaving for the Galatians because they were convinced of the idea that they were not good enough for God despite believing in Jesus. Therefore, they had to live a burdening life of earning his favor by keeping the law. And the big question this caused them to ask is, am I really a Christian? And today, so many of us still ask this question. And if that is you, the the letter to the Galatians is for you. And Paul, he wrote to the Galatians to correct this false teaching of works-based righteousness. A a quick overview of Galatians. In chapter 1 and 2, Paul's arguing the credibility of himself as an apostle Of Jesus Christ. In chapters 3 and 4, Paul argues the credibility of the gospel that he preached firsthand to them. And in chapters 5 and 6, Paul applies this gospel to everyday living. Now, making our way up to our text in chapter 4, we read Paul's kind of like main gospel argument in chapter 2, verse 16. It reads A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, this word justified here means declared righteous. We're only declared righteous in God's sight by faith in Jesus Christ and not by any good works we do. And when we we continue through Galatians, we learn that faith in Christ— means union with Christ and all that he is and all that he's done. In chapters 3, 26 through 29, it's loaded with terminology of faith equating to being in Christ, to putting on Christ, being baptized into Christ. All of this union with Christ language. And all of these arguments Paul is making are for the purpose of assuring the Galatians that Jesus is enough to make them right before God. And they don't have to go looking any farther than him. But as glorious as justification through union with Christ is, Paul, he wants to show us where where that brings us to. And he wants to take us deeper into what faith means for believers as we arrive to our text. And that deeper reality is adoption— Now, this is the apex of the gospel for redeemed sinners. This is what the gospel brings us to, and that is orphan enemies becoming adopted children. And so God God wants you to be reassured that your true identity is not based on earning God's favor or anything else in this world, but it's based on God adopting you by union with Christ through faith. So my first point, if you're writing notes, is all people are enslaved and in need of adoption. I'll read verses 1 through 3 for us one more time. Verse 1, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So, Paul, he is returning to an analogy he gave back in chapter 3, verse 24. And in this analogy, Paul has in mind ancient Greek civil law where the son is the heir of all that the father has. But until the son comes of age, he is under guardians and managers. And these guardians and managers, they act as glorified nannies, if you will. They, they oversaw the sons going out and coming in. They disciplined him. They made sure he did all that he was supposed to do. Parents, we all probably want one of those, right? But until he came of the age set by his father, the son served, worked, and looked like one of the servants. And even though he would possess all that the father had, you can imagine how the son would forget what it meant to serve his father as his son and heir. But Paul, he explains in verse 3, this analogy is to show the Galatians that before their faith in Christ, when they were children, they were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And these elementary principles are man's immature um, ways uh, of religion to attempt to work its way up to God. And this is the Jews' misuse of the law. They thought that obeying the law would make them right with God the problem was, they couldn't obey the law. Now, the purpose of the law was meant all along to show that they can't come up to God, but they need God to come down to them. But we also see that elementary principles go beyond misuse of the law. We know from verse 9 that there were elementary principles from the pagan religion the Galatians came out of. Colossians 2.8 uses a similar term, elemental spirits— As a way to express worldly, man-made philosophy. So we can infer the Jews' misuse of the law looked the same as the Galatians' pagan religion they came out of. They were both the host of elementary principles. They both saw God as an enslaving taskmaster rather than a merciful father. Elementary principles, they're childish, elementary, basic, worldly ways of thinking, and the Galatians needed to grow up out of it into the gospel. And just as the son in the analogy needed to eventually transition into adulthood and receive his inheritance, so the Galatians have transitioned out of elementary, worldly principles into the gospel. But this analogy of coming of age is to be compared to the Galatians and to us in a different light. God transitions the Galatians and everyone who trusts in Christ in a unique way. And Paul is going to use the word adoption. Adoption means to legally make someone a family member who at one time belonged to another. A man's default state is not belonging to God, but belonging to Satan to this world and its elementary principles. And Jesus tells the Pharisees in John 8:44 he says, "You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires." And these masters are not good fathers, but they are enslaving taskmasters that leave us weary, that leave us burdened and in despair. A man's default state might as well be regarded as orphans, in need of adoption into a new family. And without the gospel, without faith and freedom in Christ, this is where we find ourselves. We find ourselves enslaved to the world and its principles. We are enslaved to our sin, enslaved to our guilt, enslaved to trying to pay off our good works, or pay it off with our good works. And because of these things, we have lost our true identity as image bearers of God. And we look for identity in all the wrong places. We look for identity in ourselves, or we look for identity in others and the things around us. And it is only when we look up and look to Christ by faith do we find true identity as adopted children of God. But as Christians who have looked up to Christ by faith— and see our true identity as adopted children. Um, we, when we stumble and fall into sin, we are so tempted to forget our place as God's children. And we deceive ourselves into thinking that we are just impersonal servants and God is not happy with us. And when we sin and doubt, we need to run to him as our merciful father he is. And we need to fix our minds on how God has adopted us in Christ and how he has poured out grace and assurance to us in his son, in his spirit. And that's what Paul is pointing us to in the next verses. So, our second point is God sends his son to adopt sinners as sons. God sends his son to adopt sinners as sons. I'll read verse 4 and 5 one more time. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, before we get into it, you may notice Paul only says adoption as sons and not sons and daughters. And you may be asking, okay, what's the deal? Why only sons and not sons and daughters? And now here's why. If if he added sons and daughters, we would be missing out on the implications of women being included as heirs. Now, in ancient times, only the sons would inherit all that the father had, and women were excluded from being heirs of the inheritance. This is important. Paul is including women as heirs of the promise by calling them sons as well. We read chapter 3, 28-29. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. So don't think it is weird when the Bible includes women as sons. Calls women as sons. God also calls the church the bride of Christ. And men are included in that as the church. So these earthly analogies are to be pictures to help us understand spiritual realities. So don't think Paul here is excluding women, but he's even more so including them by making them heirs. So, but we read here, that was a side note, but we read he, here that God, he assures his children that they are his by setting their minds on, objective, on an objective external point in history where the Son of God came to redeem sinners So that they can become sons of God. It said Jesus came at the fullness of time. Jesus came at the right time in human history with God preparing and directing nations and people to receive the ministry of Christ. Prophecy has been fulfilled and prophecy is ready to be fulfilled. Jesus came at the fullness of time. And we read, we read that Jesus came born of woman, and born under the law. And this means that Jesus Christ he took on flesh as truly God and truly man. And because Christ took on humanity he became subjected to the law. God the son put himself in the position so that he can do what no man has ever done before, and that is to obey the law perfectly as a man. And the author the author of the law he subjected himself to his own law. In Jesus Christ, he came down as the God-man, subjected himself to his own law so that he can redeem lawbreakers. Jesus Christ paid the price sinners owed, and he took on the wrath that sinners deserved by dying on a cross at the hands of sinful men. And all of this was done so that those who trust in Christ do not receive wrath— but instead righteousness and adoption because they are united to the Son. And this is what it means to have faith in Christ. Faith in Christ equals union with Christ. United to Christ by faith means your debt is paid because justice was satisfied on the cross. United to Christ by faith means not only do you receive forgiveness, but you receive righteousness credited to you Because Jesus was righteous according to the law in your place. And lastly, union to Christ by faith means you are an adopted child of God. Immediately, right now, loved by God with the same eternal love that he has for his only begotten son, Jesus. And so Paul is reminding the doubting Christian, there is no work they can do for this. All the work has been done by Jesus, we are reminded of what God has done to save us. It's as the song we sing, there is no more for heaven now to give. In this truth, it ought to assure us of our place as children of God. We, we are quick to accept and believe the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. But Christians, we still find ourselves doubting who we are and doubting our salvation. Why? Why is it? It's because sin and death and the devil seek to accuse us daily that we aren't loved by God in Christ. And so, so we not only need to need the external reality of Christ on the cross and set our minds on that, but we need an internal assurance from God that we are his children. And so the question is, how does God do that? And that's our third point is, God reassures his children That they are his. God reassures his children that they are his. I'll read verse 6 and 7 one more time. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. God reassures his children that they are his by sending the spirit of his son into their hearts. So when you are united to Christ by faith, God sends the Holy Spirit into your heart. If you believe in Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And Paul words it as the spirit of God's son. Paul words the spirit in this way because the spirit is giving Utterance to the believer to call God their father. This is important. The Spirit cries in their heart, Abba, Father. And Jesus, he used the same word, Abba, to call God his Father. Abba is the most personal, reverent term someone can make for Father. And so the same intimate calling of the Father Jesus makes, it's given to you by the Spirit. That's so amazing. Galatians four six says, It is the Spirit who cries, Father, in our hearts. And but we read in Romans eight fifteen that by the Spirit we are the ones who cry out, Abba Father. The Spirit is operating in you through your faith, giving you the utterance of Father when you come to God. So, Romans 8:16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We can be sure that we are Christians. This is the question, how can I know I'm a Christian? Here's, here's the answer. We can be sure we are Christians because in our moments of trial, in our moments of need, And in our moments of crying out to God in desperation, we come running to God not as some impersonal being, but simply as our Father, our Abba Father, just simply Dad. And when my two-year-old son comes barging into my office, he doesn't expect some drill sergeant who's always mad at him and threatening him and expecting something out of him to earn his favor. But he knows he's going into that office to see his father. And he knows his father is always going to pick him up and put him on his lap. We all who have faith in Christ ought to see our God in this way. So, this, so the, my argument is that the gospel is reassurance for doubting Christians. If you're a believer and you find yourself surrounded with doubts of your right standing with God, I want you to hear this quote from Martin Luther. It's a great quote. I love it. He says, you ought to feel sure that you stand in the grace of God, not in view of your own worthiness, but through the services of Christ. And as certain as Christ pleases God— so sure ought we to be, so sure that we ought, we ought to be, that we also please God, because Christ is in us. And although you daily offend God by your sins, yet as often as you sin, God's mercy bends over you. Therefore, sin cannot get us to doubt the grace of God. I love that quote. And so even though the devil and your sin... And death is happening all around you. And the world accuses you that God is displeased with you. That you are not good enough. The Spirit in your heart assures you that you are a beloved child of God. So let sin and death and the devil and the world cry accusations aloud. The Spirit in you outcries them all. With Abba, Father. And the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We need the help of the Spirit to reassure us that we are sons of God. We need to be pointed daily to the objective outside of us reality of Christ redeeming us from the curse of the law. And we need the subjective, so to speak, inside of us reality of the Spirit crying out in our hearts. And so with this in mind, Christian, don't give in to the temptation to doubt. When we give into the temptation to doubt our right standing with God, we give into the temptation of following the elementary principles of the world. We go about like the rest of the world does and attempt to earn our place to work our way up to the top. And for us, it would be earning God's favor with our good works. And this is an enslaving place to be, as Paul says, because every day you wake up, you're going to think, God is not happy with me. And you spend the whole day going to doing what you can to make him happy based on your own merits. And this will do one of two things. One, it will either puff you up to where you think you've actually earned God's favor and so you become self-righteous. Or two, you will be in despair because you've set your bar so high and you keep letting yourself down. And if you're letting yourself down, you're for sure letting God down. And so this, the root, to this is that we lose our sight of Christ, that our faith in Christ means we're united to him in all that he is, in all that he has done. And that's why we need to saturate our minds on verse four and five. And John Owen writes another good quote. He says, the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to him, is not believe that he loves you. If you're an unbeliever, sitting here or watching on your couch, these applications for the Christian apply for you as well, in a a sense. But the difference is these are not merely doubts or feelings for the unbeliever, but a reality. Sin is enslaving, and works are enslaving. And these elementary principles leave you either self-righteous or in despair. And either way, the reality is, because of your sin, you are under the curse of the law and guilty before God. And I plead with you, we plead with you, turn from your sins and believe in the good news that Christ came into the world to redeem you of your sin. And you will be saved. You will be justified. You will find true identity as an adopted child of God. And not only that, But you'll be set free from the burden of sin, free from the burden of earning perfection, and free from the burden of every failure trying to earn perfection. You'll be free to live for God. And this is kind of the result, is that it will no longer be serving God out of earning his favor, but serving God out of gratitude, because you are loved by God as his child. That's the difference. I have one more last kind of category of application. If you have gone through life with a father or a parent or a close relationship where you always felt like you were never good enough or you always let them down, and if those wounds trickle into the way you see God, whether you feel like he's always disappointed with you or you just don't want to commit to him for the very same fear of disappointment, God wants you to know that Jesus, his beloved son, is so much stronger than that. And that it's not up to you to make him happy, but Jesus has done it all for you. In Christ, you are beloved as Jesus is beloved, and he will change you from the inside out. And when you do sin... His mercy and kindness, it bends over you and covers you. And so, this gospel truth, it heals the wounds of work based relationships. And so, in conclusion, the Son does an external work for believers, and and the Spirit does an internal work for believers. And this assures us that we are no longer slaves to fear, no longer slaves to earning God's favor, no longer slaves to sin but we are instead an adopted child of God. And we are not only adopted children, but we are also heirs through God. Right? That's that's the last line in our text and as heirs we receive all that God has to offer us in Christ. We receive forgiveness of sins and in God's sight we are seen with the righteousness of Christ. We receive freedom from the bondage of sin. We receive strength and fruit from the Holy Spirit so that we get to live freely for God. And we receive adoption as sons and daughters with a true identity. We receive all kinds of incomprehensible things as co-heirs with Christ. But best of all, better than all those things, and part of it is, is we get to have God himself for all eternity. Let's pray.